And if you guys need a Bible, if you would raise your hand, someone will give you a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give it to you as a gift and be a way to bless you guys this Sunday. All right, if everyone will stand, we're going to read from Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11. All right, Psalm 37, he will not forsake his saints. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. And he will bring forth your right righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evil doers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. This is the word of the Lord. It is a joy to be here with you. As Edward said, I have the privilege of being Naomi's uncle. And what a joy and a privilege that's been her whole life. Uh, and then to see her with Daniel and to see the boys here, it's just really, it's a delight for me. As Edward said about his own testimony, I did not grow up as a Christian. I grew up in a religious, traditional home, but by the time I hit middle school, I said, I'm sort of done with that. And so from middle school all the way until I was 25, I lived the proverbial life of wine, women, and song. I was pursuing my own happiness. I pursued everything that the world told me would be good, to make a lot of money, to have a lot of girlfriends, to go on great vacations, just to live my life the way that I wanted to live it. But even though I was successful in achieving the things that the world said that I should get, there was a, a deep longing in my heart that I couldn't satisfy on my own. And so it's a joy to be here with you this morning to talk about this wonderful Savior that we have, Jesus Christ. And, and I want to ask you a question. If we did a little survey when you came in today and I gave you a little piece of paper and said, on a scale of 1 to 10, how satisfied are you with your life? What do you think you would score? So let's say 10 is I am like uber satisfied. I am so satisfied. There's just nothing that's not going well in my life. Every desire, every want, everything that's going on, I'm, I'm just like perfectly content. No complaints. And Jesus and I are like this. That's a 10. One is I'm barely hanging on by a thread. I hate my life. There's nothing going well. Literally every single area of my life, my job, my relationships, my kids, you, you name it. My in-laws, everything's just, everything's bad, right? I'm worried, I'm anxious, I'm angry, I snap at everybody, I'm just fretful, I can't sleep at night. Okay, that's a one. So if I gave you a little card and said, how satisfied are you, scale of one to ten, 
what would you say? Now, I think in a room this size, I honestly think, and this is even amongst Christians, I would say, sadly, many of us would probably come in around a three or four. Such is the way that our life works here in Northern Virginia. I think we are so inundated with what our wants and what our desires and things should be that I think there can be a subtle discontent that seeps into even our Christian lives. And we never think that when we become a Christian. We think, oh, when I become a Christian, everything's going to be a 10. But then life keeps happening. And surprise, surprise, as a Christian, actually in many ways, the choices we make and, and what goes on in our lives actually gets harder, doesn't it? Because stuff that we could just laugh off or just say, oh, you know, whatever. Well, now you have to take seriously because God says something about it. About how we think and about how we live our lives and about who we live our lives for. For ourselves or for God and for others. I mean, life just gets a little more complicated. So I think a four, and you might disagree with me, you might be, no, 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 we're all sevens, you know. And that's great. But I think in every one of us, there can be a sense of longing possibly a sense of dissatisfaction in at least one major area of our lives. And the reality is that life is hard. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. There is sadness. There is brokenness in all of our lives. Some of it that happens to us, and some of the mess we make ourselves. This is the world that we live in. And in this Psalm 37, it's a depiction of life in a fallen world where there is wickedness all over the place. People are being pursued by wicked people. And people are sort of wondering in their hearts, God, when are you going to make it right for the righteous? And when are you going to punish those wicked people? Because they seem to be having free reign and they're winning. God, why aren't you winning in my life? And that's sort of the background, the Psalm 37, that life is hard, that wickedness and wicked people abound, they're all around us. But what does it matter to be one of God's people? Does it matter? And the psalmist says emphatically, yes, it does. Being one of God's people changes everything. Now, it might not change every circumstance, but it changes everything about how you process your circumstances and what's going on in our lives. And so some of our discontent comes from the world that we live in. Some of our discontent just comes from our own hearts. Many of you all have heard of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said this about how the disposition of our hearts can kind of affect the way that we live. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And sometimes we even get in the way of our own satisfactions because we don't even know the right things to desire. And so Psalm 37 It's about living as God's people in the midst of a broken world. Psalm 37 shows us that God ultimately does reward the righteous and he will punish the wrongdoers. And as the psalmist comes to recognize this and to write about this and to exalt God in all of this, even in the midst of the psalmist's trials, 
He instructs the people in a few ways. He said, one thing you've got to remember, you've got to wait on the Lord and trust in his ways. Foundation. And you have to always remember how the story ends. You have to trust in the Lord. You have to wait upon the Lord. And you have to remember how the story ends. So not only will the righteous be rewarded in this life, but ultimately we know that in the life to come, God will make everything right. So how can you and I, given this sort of background, and I think our life is just like the psalmist. I think we live in a broken world filled with wickedness and wicked people, and we have hearts that go astray and desire different things and lead us to be dissatisfied. How then, as the people of God who've been indwelt by God's Spirit, who've been transformed because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, how can we live these satisfied lives that God calls us to? So look back at your Bible. I'm just going to focus on one verse in this psalm today. Verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let me read it again. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So if I asked you another question on the, the back side of the survey and said, what do you actually delight in, and why do you delight in it? How would you answer that? A while back when I first uh, did this message, I asked a lot of people, I said, what do you really delight in? What, what really matters to you? And I heard a lot of things that I think are pretty common to all of us. Some people said friendships. I just, I just delight in hanging out with my friends. And, and then when I probed a little bit more, I said, well, why? And they said, well, because I'm lonely and I want to be accepted. And so that's really important to me. And that's where I get satisfaction when I have friends. And other people, they were students. And I said, well, what do you really delight in? And they said, good grades. Because good grades are going to get me to the school that I want to get to. Grades were a means to an end. And grades were also, when I probed a little bit more, getting good grades and being at the top of the class, well, it spoke to them about their identity. I'm a success. I'm making it. And as I went through things like friendship and good grades, some people said job, money, sex. Some people said computer games, relationships, music, movies, sports, nature. We have all these different things, none of them in and of themselves necessarily bad. But we have all these things in our lives that can compete for our desires. And, and ultimately, if we don't watch ourselves, these, these desires that we have, these things that will make us satisfied, can over time eclipse the satisfaction that we're supposed to get from God alone. And that's why it's so deceiving. Because it's not like I'm up here saying, okay, delight yourself in the Lord. So that means don't do any of the bad stuff. Well, that would be easy. We, we all get that. The Bible's re really clear on that. What's a little more nuanced is, what about all the good things that God gives to us? The things that the gift giver gives to us as gifts, well, what if we start to desire them more than we desire the, the gift giver? It's subtle. Because they're not necessarily bad, but we can make them bad when we replace God with them. And as good as all these things can be, one thing is common to all of them, in and of themselves, they will never ultimately give us the satisfaction, that deep abiding satisfaction that God desires to give us in himself. 
That's why this verse in Psalm 4 is so critical. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart because true and lasting satisfaction is only found in the Lord. So I just have two simple points today. One is God's satisfaction plan. Okay, so the first part of verse 37, uh, chapter 37, verse 4, is delight yourself in the Lord. Okay, so this is God's satisfaction plan for you. Delight yourself in the Lord. Now, as I said, I grew up in a religious home, and oftentimes when I think about delighting myself in the Lord, instead of thinking like delight and relationship, I think duty. I think that when I read this verse, I would expect it to say, obey the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Be a faithful follower of the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And it does say things like that in other parts of Scripture. But in this, something else is being highlighted. It's the relationship that God desires us to have with him. You see, God wants our lives to be filled with delight and joy. Even Jesus said in John 15 when he was speaking to the disciples, he said that his desire was that his joy would be in them and that their joy would be complete. I mean, how awesome is that? And we don't think that way. We don't wake up in the morning and say, you know what, one of the things I know about God today is he wants his joy in me. No, we end up waking up thinking about how we've disappointed God or how we've sinned and oh, maybe I better not meet with God today. He's probably angry at me. I mean, we have all these things that run through our minds. But God desires for us to have a joy and a satisfaction in him. And so you might be asking, well, what does it look like to delight in the Lord? And the reality is I don't have a a pithy, short definition for you. But let me describe it from a quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, because I think it's helpful, it's illustrative of, Sort of, we have to think about this from a few different sides. He said, delighting in God is a perfect resignation of yourself into God's hands. That's that complete abandonment. It says, I'm going to be with you. It's, It's purposeful. And then he goes on. He says, it's an intense confidence in his love to you. That's a great thing to remember every day when we wake up, that God actually does love us. And he's proven it by sending his son to die on a cross for us. And then he says, it also involves a divine love to him so that you feel you would be anything or do anything for him. You start to see the momentum in how he's writing. He's got something here. And then he says, there must be added to all this a joy in him. And when you have these, they must be set a-boiling. And then you have delight in the Lord your God. Jonathan Edwards said something very similar. He called this religious affections. And basically it boils down to this. It's love to Christ, and it's joy in Christ, and it's a vigorous pursuit of both. Just being in God's presence, being with God, delighting in Him. Knowing the Lord and his ways, this is delighting in God. But if this is what God wants, then why do we so easily satisfy ourselves with things that are not that? Well, the reality is loving God does not come naturally to us. It's a a work of the Spirit that changes our dead hearts and makes them alive to God in Christ. 
And until the Lord takes us home, we're going to be in this battle that, that there's going to be options that we have, God or other things. And so there's a war that goes on in our soul. And we oftentimes tend to get more pleasure from God's creation than from God himself. We love the things of this world. This indwelling sin stands in the way of our full satisfaction in God. And we have an enemy who wants to remind us, oh, you don't, you don't need to be one of those godly people. Just keep, keep living your life the other way. You've got your insurance card. You know, you've got the, I'm going to go to heaven when I die because you've said that you believe in Jesus. But you don't have to actually know him. You, just, you already prayed the prayer. You're in. You're in the club. You've got the insurance policy. Now, that, that's what the enemy lies to us about. The enemy wants us to believe that the way we live our lives doesn't matter to God. And that couldn't be further from the truth. But the way we live our lives isn't first and foremost about our obedience to God. It's first and foremost about our devotion to God. It's a matter of the heart. Now, the obedience flows out of that heart, and they're inseparable. You can't take one or the other and separate them. But in terms of order of operation, this love for God is designed by God to be our all in all. For this will be the source of our great satisfaction. In his book, A Hunger for God, John Piper says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. I, I think that's a very, very profound statement about the culture that we live in. And then he goes on. He says, And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when we replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. When we keep giving ourselves over to the things of this world, just hanging out and drinking and watching movies we shouldn't watch and listening to music we shouldn't be listening to and living our lives, these things deaden our senses. They anesthetize us. They make us sort of immune to the things of God because we just captivate ourselves in the drivel of this world. And brothers and sisters, we need to be aware that's how the battle gets fought. It's not always in the big, huge, honking sin out there. It's in the day-to-day -day choices we make to live for God and to live for his ways all the time. In everything that we think, say, and do, we do it for him. So what is God's remedy? Well, he tells us very simply, be satisfied in him. And as I said, when we come to faith in Christ, God's spirit comes and dwells in us. And we know then that through Jesus God purchased for us new eyes and new ears and a new heart. And this is the direction that God wants us to go in, is to keep in step with his spirit. Because he saves us in order that we might see and savor his son, Jesus Christ. You see, seeing Jesus then awakens joy. Because we are reminded of who he is and what he's done for us. And so Jesus, then, is the embodiment of all that is truly desirable 
and of all that will truly satisfy. He is the perfection of grace, compassion, mercy, kindness, patience, and love. And believing in Jesus involves delighting in him as a person. It's cultivating a real and personal relationship with Jesus Christ on a day-in, day-out, all-day-long kind of basis. This story was driven home to me in my own life, this understanding about delighting in the Lord, because when I first got saved, I got saved when I was 25, pretty radical conversion, very radical conversion. And I was over in England doing my master's degree in finance, and I had always wanted to be rich and famous, so that's sort of the path I was on. But I ended up going over to grad school right as I got saved, and I got to know a girl in the, at the university. She was another grad student, and she was a Christian, and we got along great, and I was throwing myself into all the Christian things to do. I was going with the Christian union group over to the public schools, and we were doing drama skits, and we were, I was telling people about the gospel all the time. I mean, it was just like I was on fire for the Lord, and everything was great, and I was doing all the things that I thought a Christian should do, and I was, I was so happy, and I was reading my Bible, and then I met this girl, and I thought, oh, man, given my past, man, I'm just going to do the right thing, and this is going to be great. I'm, I'm going to get the girl. Like, this is going to be awesome. But as time went on and the semester and the term period went on, we became really good friends, but I started to realize that she didn't think about me the same way that I thought about her. And one night, I was over at... Uh, I was in a church about the size of this, actually, met in a school, and one of the older gentlemen in the church asked me to come over to his house because he had something that I needed to hear, and so I said, sure, and he was discipling me, and so I went over to his house, and when I got to the house, this girl was there, and his wife was actually discipling this girl, and he said, look, we just needed to get you here because she has something that she needs to tell you, and she flat out told me, look, you're a great guy, I really like you, but you're not the one, so don't, don't pursue me. So I was like, okay, I... All right, so in the moment, I think I was just in shock, tried to get out of there as fast as I could and all that. Well, therein began a series of the next couple of months of my life where my whole world was upside down. You see, I thought following God was about obeying all the rules. But if I obeyed the rules, I'd get what I want. You see, I thought of God like a vending machine. Put in my good works and then press the little numbers and then I get what I want. And I didn't get what I want. And, and I think it would probably be too much to say it was a Christ of faith because I knew I was believing in the Lord. I was pursuing God still. But I was brokenhearted. What I desired, God wasn't giving me. And it creates this huge question in our lives. Now what? What am I going to do with this? And, and I was obsessed about this thing. I don't know if you guys have ever done any crazy things when somebody doesn't like you, but I used to go to the place on the campus. There was a little lake and this beautiful little vista and all that. And I used to sit there because she and I used to sit and have long conversations there. And I would sit there for hours thinking that one day she was going to come around the corner and tell me what a big mistake she had made. I honestly, I mean, this went on a long time. I would just think about, okay, when is the knock on the door going to come? She's going to say, you know what, I was wrong. I I just, I couldn't accept that this wasn't going to work out the way I wanted. My heart was broken. And I was dissatisfied. And so this went on for a long time. And I kid you not, I mean a long time. And I would cry about this. And one day I was walking across campus after school and I 
I was walking, and I just literally just started breaking down in tears because I said, God, why did this happen this way? And so then I made kind of a probably not bright deal with God. I said, I'm going to keep walking until you tell me the answer. And I kid you not, I'm about eight miles into the countryside of southern England, going up and down the undulating hills, these tight little squiggly roads that are all over the place, probably going to get creamed by some car flying over the hill. But I was so, I mean, it just, I couldn't stand it anymore. I had to know God why. I was nice to her. I was kind. We got along. I didn't do any of the bad stuff I used to do. Like, everything, like, why? And I just, this went on for mile after mile. And I'm crying. And I'm like, God, you've got to tell me. I, I, I don't know what to do. And I remember I finally got to the top of this one hill. And I was looking over these fields. And when I looked over the fields, I just, I was getting tired. I knew I was going to have to walk back. <laughs> and I felt like God spoke to me. And not in some weird, you know, I didn't have a burning bush experience, but I, I am sure this was God answering my prayers because God does speak to us. And he just said, am I enough? And that was a showstopper because in that moment I realized that I loved something more than I loved God. And that no matter how much I loved her, I was never going to have deep and abiding satisfaction unless my first love was God. So I sat there for a minute and I cried. I said, if that's what this is all about, I counted the cost and I said, you're worth it. I know you are good. I just had to tell myself the truth. That I'd have to wait on him, I'd have to trust on him, and I know how the end of the story is written. So I turned around and I walked back and my life was forever changed. Because God taught me that the most important thing about my satisfaction was that I delight myself in the Lord. Second point, I'll be a lot more brief because you guys have short services here, so I'll wrap this up here. (laughs) So there's God's satisfaction plan, delight yourself in the Lord. And there is God's satisfaction promise that he will give you the desires of your heart. So how does that work? I just said that I really wanted to have this girl be my wife. And God said, no, that was the desire of my heart. The story goes on. You see, I had a misunderstanding of how this verse works. My mom gave me this verse on a plaque when I first became a Christian. But I didn't really understand what it meant. As I said, I I sort of thought it was like God's a vending machine, sort of this cosmic vending machine. Just, okay, instead of being a bad person, I'll be a good person, and then you'll get what you want. But this verse doesn't give us an unqualified promise. He's certainly not going to give us sinful things. But he's also not going to give us things that we might think we want, that ultimately, in his divine providence and his wisdom, he knows will not ultimately be the best for us. You see, God has a perfect plan for each and every one of us. And he doesn't always let us in on exactly how those details are going to be worked out. And this is why following Christ requires faith. Because there are going to be things that are unseen. And you're going to have to interpret your circumstances through the lens of faith. Faith in this unchanging, glorious God. 
and he's worth it. You see, in this context, as I said, this psalm speaks about wickedness and trials. Life was just not going the way that people wanted. And as I said, the the temptation was to take matters into their own hands and not wait on the Lord. Or they could trust in something other than God to bring relief and deliverance. Or they could forget that God writes the end of the story and just live for the here and now. So what is the nature of this promise? The promise is that the more you know the Lord, and in our case, now being this side of the work of Jesus, we know that the more that we know Jesus through the word, and we commune with him through prayer, and we wait upon him and listen to the work of the Holy Spirit that searches our hearts and searches our minds and intercedes for us. And as we listen to God, and the more we delight in him, the more our desires become his desires. And the things of this world become less, and the things of God become more. And so our fears and our worries and our cares and our sadnesses and sorrows and our guilt and the desires of our hearts will stop being just mere worldly, temporary desires. You see, when we come to faith in Christ, we get a new perspective. Life is no longer about us and how we can sort of game the system to get what we want. Life is now about living for God. Living for Jesus Christ, the one who died for you. So that you can live your life for the praise of his glory. And God's promise then is that living that way will bring you your heart's delight. It will bring you the deep and abiding satisfaction that nothing in the world can give you. The nature of this promise is that we get peace with God. And we find satisfaction in him even when things are going terrible in our lives? Because the love that God has shown to you is a love that he will never take away from you. And so he wants you to be reminded of that. When your circumstances are hard and when things aren't going the way that you want or you're disappointed and you're finding satisfaction in something else, he says, no, delight yourself in the Lord and I'll give you the desires of your heart and I hope you remember that he will be at work changing your heart to give you what's best for you. So how does this promise bring satisfaction? God gives us himself the fountain of all delight. Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13 say this, and this was a a prophecy against the people who had turned away from God. He said, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So it's two sides of the same coin. They forget God, but instead they build their own cisterns, which are just things to hold water. But the cisterns have leaks in them. In other words, what we build our lives on ourselves will never last and it will never satisfy. So don't forsake the Lord. Delight yourself in Him. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. And see, my story wasn't finished. My story wasn't over. God's still writing it. But about a year after this whole event with the Lord took place, I was in Romania at the time working for World Vision. It was cold. It was the middle of winter. There was no heat. It was right after communism had fallen. And God in his kindness 
introduced me to this beautiful missionary from Southern California. And we met on her birthday in February. We started going out in April. I asked her to marry me about two weeks later. And then we got married in June. And here's the moral of the story here. When God gives you something good, lay hold of it. Okay? Do, do not be messing around. When you're sure, you're sure it's God. And you got confirmation, you go for it. But now knowing the backstory of God giving me such a wonderful gift, what do you think happened in my heart when I realized that she was going to say yes to marrying me and she was and is the most wonderful woman I could tell you about? You see, I thought I knew what my heart desired. But God knew what was better for me. And so by trusting God and waiting on Him, and knowing that the end is already written for me, I could trust him and I could walk by faith. And your story will all be different. Maybe God, my story could have been written that God would have me be single for the rest of my days. And that would have been fine too. Because ultimately I wasn't going to find my ultimate satisfaction in relationships with another person. My ultimate satisfaction is found in God. He's a good father. We're going to sing that song in just a minute. But his ways are not our ways. They're higher than our ways. They're better than our ways. And even when these things are hard, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is our great satisfaction. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can be here today, being reminded of your great word and of your great work. We thank you that you make amazing promises. And we're even more amazed that you you keep every one of them. And I thank you for my friends here today. I pray that they would consider their spiritual appetite, that they would look around at their lives and search their hearts. And with your help by your spirit, I pray, Father, that you would help them to see where they are nibbling at the table of the world and help them to put those things away so that they can cultivate their true spiritual appetite, a hunger and thirst to know Jesus Christ, and then to share this delight with others. Pray that you would bless them and keep them in Jesus' name. Amen.